0: Hello, and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment, and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazi Clivature. We're gonna hear from Sophie Broadgate, filmmaker and founder of Pikaia Films. She's speaking to one of our producers, Januk Sarkar, about owning your own access needs and creating a more bespoke seat at the table. Sophie and Januk talked about communication, creative struggles, and developing effective coping strategies.
1: My name is Sophie Broadgate, and um, my pronouns are she/her. And I I always say that I'm a writer-director, but I do do other stuff as well. Um, so sometimes I just say filmmaker because that encompasses lots of different things. That's really
2: helpful and we'll probably dig into that (laughs) a little bit more over the next few questions. Can you tell us a bit more about your creative practice and work in film? Like when and how did you identify your interests in this
1: particular creative work that you do? I think for a, a long, long time making films was like, it was like my childhood dream. And I guess like most autistic people you get like a special interest that you become obsessed with. Um, I started making animations. That field really matched my sort of difficulty in connecting with people because when you animate, you obviously you just use puppets and you don't really... you can do a lot of stuff on your own. So I started out making films and telling stories just by making puppets. And I would just spend a lot of days alone in a dark room making like little props, like miniature cushions and this kind of thing. I, even before that, I was like... I used to make comics. I used to draw things. I think that essentially when I look back on it now is that I, I struggle to connect with people in a traditional way. So I think I used to show people how I cared about them by, like, drawing something for them. Or sometimes I would feel a certain feeling and I would create a story to kind of process that feeling, I think. So I think that that's where it developed. And then when I went to college um, at age 15, I decided to, like, go all in for filmmaking I started studying like film studies, media studies, and art at college. And I just got increasingly into um studying live action film. Um quite a few people that I mixed with who also wanted to make films seemed to be similar to me, whether they were autistic or not. They they were very visual people, and um and I think within artistic careers, you do get people that are much more open minded. So I, I suddenly started to find a group of people that felt a lot more like me so I went into to study at university so I moved away from Cumbria um I now live in Manchester which is where I went to university um, and then since university I basically like had a really winding career of um I don't even know how to start with how I actually managed to get into the film industry because it was, it was a very complicated route because basically when I graduated from university I had to have a part-time job to, to support myself, but I would always make film projects on the side and I was constantly, like, pestering all of the film companies in the area. Even though I hated calling them, I was just like, I'm just going to call them, I'm just going to do it. Um, and eventually, one company agreed to meet me. So I went into their office and they were, like, um, a small company making brand films, which it, they're kind of like adverts, but they they were more, like, emotionally driven and I I was quite a fan of their work, so... I went in, I was so nervous, I showed them my showreel and barely spoke a word, um, dropped my glass of water on the floor because I was so nervous, like, <laughs> but <laughs> but they agreed to take me on um, for like two weeks of work because they had like loads of shoots going on, so I left my part-time job on the promise of two weeks of work, which seemed really risky, but basically all of my filmmaking career has just been based off of a lot of risk, I think. Um, wow risk and hard work like following the risk but basically I just said to myself I need to be my most sociable I need to be my most like on it these two weeks and then they gave me like a full-time job so then I I was working in like production assistant full-time for two years Um, and that's basically where I learned everything about the industry because working in the industry and the stuff that you do at uni was so different because at university we worked in like teams of five um and then as a production assistant I was working with like crews of like 30 odd people if even bigger and and massive budgets and there was a lot of sort of privilege floating around there was a lot of um well take care of everyone's needs all the time and never think of your own needs which obviously like as an autistic person you you just have to basically shut off all of your needs and at the time I didn't know that I was autistic at all this is like very new news to me oh yes because I wanted to um ask about that about your
2: connection to neurodiversity and and obviously you've mentioned that you're autistic but at a certain point didn't know that so I was wondering if you could tell us about how that
1: happened because that was so interesting yeah totally so I think um I think I noticed I mean I always knew there was something I guess, different about how I interacted and how I sort of processed things and how I saw things. But I think everyone used to use the word sensitive to describe me. And, and, you know, they'd just be like, oh, you're an artist, you're this. They just use other words to describe me. So I just thought like, oh, I'm just weird. I'm just whatever alternative or whatever they wanted to brand me with. And then I just suddenly had like a series of, well, bad mental health. And I think that, um, so that's the first time I went to the doctors and they said, oh, you've got depression Um, and anxiety so for years up until maybe like two years ago everything that I experienced both in work and in personal life I just always went on I'm anxious I'm this and that and then I started to like um so I'm 31 now and I think I started making my own stuff again maybe at like 23 24 um so from then until now basically started to find myself a little bit through film and I'm queer as well. So I also started to make a lot of work about queerness and I think through, you know, connecting with other queer people, I started to meet a lot of people who were describing themselves as neurodivergent. You know, they had ADHD, autism, and quite a lot of my friends actually do have ADHD or autism and I naturally gravitated towards people um, who are neurodivergent. I also, um, as part of me trying to make some money, I connected with a company back in Cumbria um called Signal Film and Media um which were actually the one of the companies that like taught me how to make films when I was a kid in Cumbria, so I reconnected with them in later life and agreed to like project manage um some stuff with them, so that was like two days a week for six years. I worked there, and I did a project there called Anime Autism um and this was again before I knew anything about me but my boss I think that she sensed that I was on the spectrum and I think that she thought I knew about it (laughs) but I didn't I think everyone that I worked with was like oh yeah she's on the spectrum but no one ever said anything to me but um so I started working with these young girls um to teach them how to do animation and they started like coming to me and talking to me and I just started being like that's me like that's that's what I was like when I was young and that there, those are the kind of things that I felt about school and and just about everything and and suddenly just a light turned on in my head and I was like oh my god okay I just I can see everything different now so I just started like researching on the side for like six months or something quietly <laughs> to myself because anytime you say the word autism to people they're just like oh no that's not you that's not for you so Um, And I think I tentatively mentioned it to a few people and they were like, hmm, not really sure about that.
2: Was that um, anyone that you mentioned it to or specific people in your life? Like, would it be work people or family or friends?
1: I think at work, everyone was really for it. Because, especially at Signal, because we worked with a lot of young people that were autistic. I think they understood the presentation of it Um and also my boss at the time Carrie Colby her husband's autistic so she knows a lot about it so i think that when i started to say that i think that's me they were like of course it's like we don't have any doubt um i think it was people outside of creative industries um maybe like a few friends um even my partner at the time didn't really know anything about it and and she was just like oh but you're so empathetic and that's that's so a, a lot what people say and you know, my mum as well thought that I was too empathetic to be autistic. So actually, I just had to come to people with like a bunch of research and be like, actually, like, you know, watch this video about this woman talking about autism. And eventually people started to do the work around me and try to figure it out with me. Yeah. For a while, I was like, oh, I don't need a diagnosis. I'm, I'm just going to sort of use autistic coping strategies um, and see how that works. And And then they worked. I had an issue basically is that anytime I would go to the doctors with an issue about you know burnout or anything like that it would be chalked down to depression so they would say well you can either have antidepressants or more therapy and I was already in therapy and I was like okay well you know it's not working so but then as soon as I started to engage with like autistic coping strategies I was just completely fine and I used to get brain fog a lot and and things like this and um, and since I've been like you know acting my true autistic self I suppose like I've just never had that cloudiness again yeah
2: that's so um kind of
1: yeah intuitive of you
2: and must have been exhausting as well like some of the situations you've already described kind of connect like with my next question like how you put yourself out there to be in those roles because you knew that that was the area of work you wanted to thrive in creatively, but you knew it it involved lots of communication, lots of kind of contacting people. Yeah, it sounds exhausting to me. (laughs) Um, And I just wondered, like, with that kind of connecting with your collaborators, how, how did the relationship start? Has it always been that you've had to find the energy to or the right moment in time where you're not burnt out from something to sort of make that contact first? Or has it been different, depending on different work streams or projects?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think in the early days, it was basically me, me finding the energy to do it. And and often sort of like, when I look back on it, I think I was consistently burnt out, when I was in my early 20s I think I just operated at a level of exhaustion that I wouldn't operate on now because I guess as I got into my 30s I was like I just don't have the energy to to pull that energy up now so I think at the beginning it was and and I was interacting with people that maybe weren't particularly like myself or you know I had to make a real effort to like bridge the gap Mm -hmm. and not seem awkward or you know this kind of thing but I think the longer I've been making stuff, the more I've found collaborators and people that um, do accept me and that do see me for who I am. That's interesting.
2: How do you present that? Because obviously with Signal Film and media, it sounds like they're really supportive and they have an inherent knowledge of what it means to be autistic or support autistic people they're working with. And you'd had a previous sort of relationship with them, which was nice because you could return to it. But then if it's a new company or like with um your own company as well yeah how the let's keep growing project um that I've heard about it's slightly different
1: but yeah can you tell us more about how that began and I think I'm a bit rare in the way that I work because I think that I could probably make a lot more money if I was willing to sort of just go out and talk to anyone these days I used to do that when I didn't have much work in my portfolio but now I think a lot of my work sort of develops really organically, so I usually like meet people for a friend or maybe they've watched something of mine and they'll like con like a lot of people come to me now, which is nice. um after years of sort of like being out there and asking, a lot of the time people do come to me now. and then also like just being in Manchester for like thirteen, fourteen years. Um, I think I've found a really nice safe group of people especially like within the queer arts community here I just think that it's like been such a lovely space that I feel like even though going to an event always makes me feel anxious I just know that there'll be people there that are so welcoming so I think a lot of my projects have just been through meeting people at events and just finding people that are like me and I think that um a big part of my life that well something that changed my life a lot was meeting my current producer, um, Margot Douglas. Um, basically, I went through a period of time where I I was trying to develop my narrative side of my work much more because it's it's much easier for me to make documentaries because there's something much more immediate about them. But with narrative film, like the the process is much longer. Um, And you also need a lot of funding to even get started, basically. Like, I can write on my own, but then as soon as you want people involved, there's just a lot of money attached. And I was struggling to find a producer that I thought really understood what I wanted to make, because um, I think I like to make things that are quite subtle and and really observant. Um, And I think that to get funding, often people just want something big and like, whoa, oh my God, like something like Hollywood um, style, but... um, I met Margot through a friend um, and the first meeting that we had it just felt like I'd known her forever so meeting her and straight away she told me like you know that she has anxiety she has depression and um, she was just very open up front and and so I felt like I could be that way and basically we forged this relationship that is even when we're not working on projects together we've become really good friends and we just like big each other up and um, so I think that Yeah, in terms of collaborations now, I I only ever work with people who I click with. And and that's a fortunate position to be in because I went through years of having to work with people and having to learn how to compromise with people who we didn't meet eye to eye. But um, yeah, definitely valuable skills to learn in how to take feedback from someone who you don't really get on with maybe. (laughs) Yeah, but also that
2: it's so interesting that using that experience you've now got to a a position where you can kind of orchestrate or command the space to make it more accessible Um, not just for you like you say like I know other people that are neurotypical and work in film industries who say exactly the same thing about what you've just mentioned that you know the the chaos and the amount of stress that can be built into the atmosphere is burnout material basically (laughs) criteria for burnout (laughs) yeah so I I think it's so interesting that you're trying to carve out a, a new reframing of what it's like to be working on a film set I think that's really great um are there any other specific examples that um you found quite difficult in
1: getting into the industry yeah totally um I think that like even though I do do it like I do networking stuff, there's probably like a networking thing that I could go to every other week here. And I don't go to that many because, so I I think, like I said previously, I think that I could be much further on in my career if I was able to be more extroverted. And I think that like the industry does reward extroverted behavior. Like, I think I remember when I first engaged with a few funders, I know I won't name which funders they are, but I basically went to a funding event and um one of the the producers of this fund basically like pushed me towards people to be like you need to talk to this person and like when you like struggle to um read social situations I think my sort of coping strategy with it was to I've gotten very good at tuning in in an extreme way so I think even from afar I can tell if I want to talk to someone or not like so what kind of things like you that sense of
2: can you identify them or is it
1: I think it's just like body language I think I can sense very quickly when someone's being fake um it's privilege as well I think when I when I interact with people in the film industry that have so much privilege and they're not aware of like how their actions and how the way that they're going about things is affecting people I think um I just like recoil away so I think I tend to like interact with people who are like on the outsides of these networking things and and often you'll just find like somebody else like hanging around by the food and then you'll be like, oh hey. But then the sad thing about a lot of those networking things is that I have left them being like I didn't really get anything for my career from that because usually the people that have got the money are the ones I actually really don't want to talk to. I think that's something that I struggle with a lot is that I'm not particularly driven by money and obviously I need to make money and like the things that I make have to become profitable at some point every creative's quandary in a way yeah so it's kind of like you know I've I've been and you know talking about things that I find difficult is that I am very rejection sensitive like and it's something that I do work on in myself and I go okay like you know take a moment but yeah I react very very severely to criticism um and I've been in, in certain situations where like I've had to pitch to um, an audience of like a judges or something like that. And, <laughs> and I just find it really hard when I sometimes the feedback that you get for me is so inhumane because it seems like um, executive producers, they're not creative people in particular. Like some of them are, but they're they're all about the money and they're all about the business. And of course, we need them. But I think that there's a disconnect for me in terms of how they think about things because, you know, I went and pitched like a really personal idea with a friend of mine once. Um, it was about queer, queer characters uh, in the north, um, and this was kind of a bit before like queer filmmaking really kicked off and like Hollywood um were making a lot of LGBTQ films, um, and we got feedback basically saying like, who's going to watch this? Where's your market? Where are you going to make the money? And I was like. but I was so young at the time that I wasn't going to like argue back at them. But, um, and they also suggested that maybe we should make the film not queer. And and so we just left it being like, so is there no space for us? Like, is there, um, yeah, I think it was hard for me to find the people that do want to tell those stories. And I think it's so good now that those stories are becoming more open and people want those stories. And there's like, basically executive producers want a proven track record that people are going to watch this film, even if they just don't believe you when you say, oh, there are loads of people like me because they're all my mates. But, like... (laughs) Yeah.
2: Where do you think that change happened? Where do you think that it started
1: to become recognised? I think that potentially there was a few, like, really big films that did it. Like, um, I think Moonlight was probably one of them. I think that there was a period of time where a few films did really well, and then all the executive producers obviously turned to all the queer filmmakers who, like, didn't get films made before and went, oh, it's now your time. And it's interesting that there is, in somewhere in the
2: story of how those bigger films came to fruition, that
1: somewhere along the line, one of those funders took a risk. Um, Taking on any creative project and raising money for it, and there's always an amount of risk, and I think there's always those, like, moments where even if you're not telling a story that's particularly niche it's always a risk so i think any sort of like niche aspects and that's what they always called queerness when when i was pitching these projects not particularly now they don't call it that but i was always like oh you're a niche because you want to write about women and queer people
2: and if you ever like slapped on neurodiversity or autism to that as well, there's a whole load of intersections there. That in my mind, that sounds like amazing and interesting. But in funders' minds, how is that perceived?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, I'm really excited to explore that area much more because I think um, the film that I made with Every Brain was the yeah. first film that I made that directly sort of addressed autism in me personally but also basically I interviewed 30 different women and non-binary people about their experiences of autism but I wanted to make it sort of like a, a celebration of autism because often I've heard people being like oh that person's definitely on the spectrum and it's followed by like a negative thing that they've done um, and I think I wanted to show really what it's like to see things in such a different way and, and what that can give to the world and to the people who are experiencing the world in that way as well it's a really
2: that, lovely film, and like I love the way that certain phrases are used in in the, the type
1: like is it called invisible structures no it's called it, I it? think it's called we've created these invisible- st- systems and structures that line isn't directly in the film, but it's it's something that one of the women said she like she said that to me, she was like, the thing is is like. Society's created these invisible systems and structures, and, and autistic people just can't see them, so we just act in a different way because they're invisible to us. so I think that really stuck with me, and I think it it sums up the whole film really, is that yeah, we're living in a different way, but having to sort of bob into society when we need to and then bob back out and do our own thing. I think when I started the film in my mind, I thought I was autistic, but I was like, maybe I'll talk to these women and. I'll be really different to them and, and then I'll have to look at something else. But no, but it was just a really, um, yeah, it was quite an emotional experience. And and I think about that period of time now and I feel really blown away by the opportunity to do that film because yeah. I applied to to get that um, that film made. So basically I heard about it because um, this amazing producer, well, she's a producer and curator in Manchester called Nuria, um she is really open with all opportunities and she just posts up opportunities that she sees and she's just a really good like um ally for everyone in the creative industry so i just saw this and i and because i was starting to think about my own autism i was like oh this is like really impeccable timing that this has come up so i just put in my application that i wanted to do this film that you know allowed me to explore my own autism but also allowed other women and non-binary people to have their voice heard because I know that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have the means or the skills or uh, the resources to have their voices heard so I kind of wanted to create this like chorus of people talking together and and also connecting all of those people together as well like yeah um you know allowing them to you know talk to each other as well so
2: it's really great because we've been we've managed to speak to someone from every brain as well as part of this podcast series and just what you said there about, you know, going through the process of interviewing allowed you to sort of analyze what it means for you is exactly what it's doing for me and Lorna as well, because we both neurodiverse and kind of got diagnosed quite later on in life. And so it's sort of clicking a lot of stories into place just from hearing everyone else's story. So it's pretty amazing. um am very emotional
1: and um, and also just the last thing on that is that um, it's good that you spoke to someone from Everybrain because basically that project changed the way that I thought that I could work on projects because I think when you work with people who aren't neurodivergent, there's a certain expectation set up about how the project's going to work and often they push you to overwork because I have a tendency to overwork because I've got a very addictive personality. But um, in this project, like um, Ali and Amanda produced it with me Um, And they would check in with me all the time and and everything was really consensual. So they asked me beforehand, like, how do I want to be communicated with? And I just basically said, I don't want any phone calls. I just want emails. I don't want surprise WhatsApp messages. I just want emails and Zoom calls, basically. That sounds so good
2: <laughs> that you were able to outlay that at the beginning and
1: really, yeah. yeah and then they they asked me like how frequent would you like to meet on zoom like everything was set up by me and, and every artist in that project had a different way that they wanted to interact um and each time we met on zoom like it was about the project and how it was progressing but it they also spent so much time thinking about me and asking me like how are you doing like do you feel like the deadlines that we've set are accurate? Like basically just like really empathetic way of working. And I think that since I experienced that level of care from a producer, it, it just set me up to be like, well, that's only how I'm going to work now. I'm not going to push myself for ridiculous and unsustainable working practices because that's yeah. what a lot of a lot of working practice is like that.
2: It's so easy to get into that kind of way of working especially in the creative industries you know because I know support goes a really long way as you've just described a really good example of to sort of aid developing your creativity when working on a project and um I just wondered who did you like did you have a particular someone um along the way or at certain points um of your career not just on a specific project that um would encourage and support you when you were kind of growing with your practice or like do you have someone that you continue to it sounds like um yeah, lots. yeah you've got a network <laughs> yeah
1: there's so many I think like people that stand out I think the first person actually that ever sort of supported me and and saw me for who I am I think was my film studies teacher when I was 15 Um, she basically um I was I'm still incredibly shy but I think I was even more shy like really withdrawn when I was 15 and but I had this passion for film and I was actually really good at it but I didn't think it at the time but she basically like saw that in me and she used to like take me aside after like class and be like that last essay you gave like and she would just like go through it and just like make sure that she praised me for absolutely everything. Cause I think that she recognised that I had low self-esteem and that I wasn't really like seeing myself for who I actually am. Um so she basically like worked on me over two years to be like, come on, like you're really good. Like, um, and she would just encourage me more and more to sort of like engage in class, but in like a safe way. Um, she's always been just such a just an outpouring of love, like and, and sort of honest admiration, I think. And and she really treated me as if I wasn't a kid, like as if she really believed that I was doing well. And I think that um one thing that she told to my parents that I think about, you know, to this day is that in Parents Evening she got them aside and just said, I wanna be in the front row in the cinema when your daughter makes her first feature film. Um so the That's fact that she said fine, that, okay. like um, So there was her and then I think um, one of my best friends, um, she's called Scout Stewart. She's a writer and director and and she was the first person that got me back into making narrative film. And I produced a film for her. um, I'm not even sure what year it was now. It was was quite a long time ago now, but she wrote this piece about um, a ballet dancer who struggles with perfectionism. And it's a queer story as well. So it's about queer acceptance and working with her and also my friendship with her, I've known her since university and we've kind of like, we've worked together a few times but mostly like, we're just really close friends working in the same industry but also with a similar outlook on things and to have somebody who is also wanting to make queer work that is sensitive and, and has a certain sort of like artistic sensibility about it. Um, she's always been a great encourager to me. And um,
2: And having that, Having that feedback have you noticed that that's changed the way that you work or informed it in any way
1: Yeah I, as much as I like to pretend I don't care about what people think at all I I care in in a big big amount like I'm I'm such like a typical people pleaser um an interesting bit of feedback that I that sort of changed the way that I think about work is um during this autism project is that the The film that I made was, like, one of the most raw films that I've made in a while, and it, it wasn't particularly... It was polished in a way, but there was a lot of elements of it that were quite um, rough, I think, and, like, the some of the audio was done on Zoom, some of the audio had background noise in it, and those kind of things drive me crazy because I just, like, hone in onto, like, little details, and I'm like, oh, God, I just can't get over that. But what really struck me is that, like, it was the people's words... That, that really mattered. It was the, what the people who were being interviewed were saying that mattered and nobody else heard any of the background noise. It, it's just me that was obsessing about that. And I think that the amount of positive feedback, like people were emailing me that didn't know me after seeing that film and were just saying like, that they'd felt seen for the first time in their life or they'd shown it to their cousin or you know their little kid had watched it and cried or you know all of these like amazing things from people that don't know me at all. I suddenly felt more relaxed at being like, maybe I can put out stuff that's not as polished as maybe I would like it to be. And I think there is an element of that that really excites me. Like I love to make sort of really big, high budgets looking stuff, but I think there's definitely more room. And I think I need it as well to make things that are a bit more playful and a bit more sort of, uh, just simple, like taking things back to basics. Actually on that, How did that happen in the last
2: two years (laughs) Um, during um, lockdown and pandemic, particularly like in, in the situation where our society had to really change the way we were working. And given that you've just said the way that you like to work and prefer to work, how did you manage that stripping back? And did you make any work in a particularly different way?
1: Did it stick? I think it did. I think it changed me a lot because I think, and I think a lot of people realise this, that once the pandemic hit and we weren't allowed to do the things that we wanted to do, I think I realised that since I left the village that I grew up in, I've just been on this treadmill that has been incredibly detrimental to my, like, physical and mental health. And I think that having that moment to stop and think and actually process the last, like, half of my life that I've just been like running along. I was really fortunate in the lockdown that um my partner's family lives in the New Forest so we basically like guessed that there was going to be a lockdown before it happened and just went there and and I did have a bit of income from Signal so I was really fortunate that I worked 2 days a week with Signal and then the rest of the time I just basically the first few weeks I just didn't do anything. I just like walked around in forests and sort of like just kind of tried to reconnect with who I am outside of producing stuff. Um, And then obviously, like, I always like to make stuff. So I started, like, doing other art stuff. And occasionally I do pick up stuff. Like, I I like to draw and paint and stuff. And so I started just doing little drawings and, like, making cyanotypes. I started doing, like, more photography. And then I started making little films that were kind of just, like... I made a film about, like... um, Emily's parent, Emily's my partner, her parents pond. So I like, <laughs> I just, Amazing. I had this really like zoomed in lens and I just filmed newts in the pond. Um, And I think, yeah, just reconnecting with nature because yeah, nature is is one of my other, I guess, special interests. And that's been like, I guess that was my first love when I was a kid actually. So yeah, I think um, I reconnected with that and I I spent so long at the side of this pond just watching these newts. And it was just so therapeutic. So I just made little things for no purpose, but for my own enjoyment. And I think that by doing that, it made me realize that potentially I wasn't doing that enough in my professional practices that I needed to find more time for play. I guess there's two things I'd love to hear uh, your
2: response to, which is, um, is there a specific way in which you work best um when leading on projects and if there is a particular way that you voice your ideas when you're leading with them how do you communicate that to the team that you're working with especially if you know that it might be quite contentious or you might be in the minority of opinion and the way that you want to do things how
1: do you navigate that yeah maybe the people that I work with matters a lot for example like I've got um a few cinematographers that I like to work with and I think that um they're very similar to me in that like we communicate through imagery so like you know I'll send them like a mood board of stuff to be like here are like the colors I'm thinking about and here are the kind of and I'll just throw out a few words like oh we just this scene's going to be warm and you know things like that and I think that um I didn't have the ability to communicate very well with words when I was younger but I think that um through practice and and through reading as well. I think I've just gotten quite a good vocabulary. Um and yeah, I guess practicing how to work with people. And I think that um even though I might not seem to be like the the largest character on a set, you know, I'm not somebody that commands people's attention. I think I'm very good at working with with people to bring out their best side. So I think that like I'm I like to work in a collaborative way. So It's not just me being like, this is what we're doing and you just need to do your work. It's more about like, what is interesting to them about the project and what can they add to it? Because I think that's why I like filmmaking and it's not why I got into filmmaking, but it was like a happy accident that I found this out about filmmaking is that filmmaking is really just about like finding people that are kind of similar to you or even not, but that they can understand you. And then you meld all of these ideas together and then it becomes something better than what you originally thought of. So I think that um, for me, I am a very stubborn person. So I think that it's been like a, <laughs> it's been a learning curve for me to accept other people's ideas and also to understand why they might think that way. Um, but I think sometimes um, the only really like the only disagreements I've ever had is mostly with producers or money people who aren't connected with the creative thing because I think I did have a few times where I basically just had to argue my point with a producer not my current producer but like people in the past or funders just to be like this is why it has to be this way and just keep on it yeah
2: I think that's a really good example and story of like how it develops over time as you work and and kind of develop your practice in the setting that you're working in thank you and then before I ask you the very last question, um, is there any advice that you could give other creative neurodiverse people that are uh, sort of wanting to work in film?
1: Yeah, I think um, definitely try to find people that um, make work similar to you or that they might be working on similar themes because even if you don't want to work together, I think like I spoke about, like the people that support me, I think it just... It means so much to be able to go to somebody and like say your experience or like even just rant about something that was a bad experience or a good experience and just have that feedback loop between friends. And also if you develop friendships, even if I find it hard to develop friendships for sure. But like I think that there are people that just like stick out in my mind that I connect with very easily Um, and they are rare to find because I think, you know, I guess I am a bit of a weirdo, but like, you know, whenever I found someone like that they've been like a friend for life um and I think to be able to accept their honest feedback because like I said I, I don't like feedback at all like when it's negative but I think it's it's helps me a lot to just be like oh that hurts when you say that but I'm going to look into that and actually it really usually does work when I think about their feedback so I think developing a safe environment where you can get feedback and you can have the confidence to just put yourself out there and I think um The second thing I would say is just to be true to your honest self in how you want to work. I have a level of sadness that I have pushed myself out of my limits for so many years and how that negatively impacted my mental health. Um, And also, there was a period of time where I wasn't particularly making films about being queer or being neurodiverse or, you know, well, just films about myself. I was making films for other people or about other people And I think that really the most powerful films that I watch as an audience member are ones where there's like a true heart to it and there's a true experience that people can empathise with. So I think that just be your authentic self. Obviously, it's difficult working as somebody who is um, in the minority. You know, as a neurodivergent person, you're always going to be in the minority. But if people are just saying to you that they're not understanding it, then you just need to try and find a way to help people to understand it and I think that that's how you become a better storyteller you know you're like how can I show this feeling through an image you know is it a piece of sound that is going to make people understand me that's so great such good
2: advice thank you Sophie is there a, a handle that you would like to share that people can follow your work on and is there a project name that we
1: should look out for in, in a nutshell what it's about um yeah so people can follow me online like I'm on Instagram it's just Sophie Boardgate and then also my company name is Pikaia Films but that's just basically me it's not really a company it's just me on my own but there's not any solid titles for stuff that I'm working on at the moment basically I'm in the period of time where I've put out a lot of applications and there's lots of things in development that aren't really set but what I can say is that there's going to be more work next year about um lesbian relationships as you know a queer person um definitely going to be developing something um, much more looking into autism and basically i'm i'm also in the midst of sort of opening my own company which will hopefully support other women who want to make film and try to make work with other women but also try and adjust the balance within the film industry as well so it's kind of like it's an organization that i want to make that's about making stuff but also being an advocate at the same time
2: that's brilliant so much cool stuff to look forward to and i can't thank you enough for all your time
0: you've been listening to square hole on behalf of its creators lorna allen and Januk sarkar we hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity we would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally, Thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.